This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. Welcome to On the Cover, a weekly Madsplainers feature. I'm podcast producer Natalie Yar, and each week I sit down with the reporter behind our latest cover story to find out why it matters. Today I'm talking with Cap Times Metro reporter Nicholas Garten, who's been taking a fresh look at Madison's shortage of housing for low-income and homeless people and exploring new ways the city and local organizations are tackling the problem. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Thanks for having me, Natalie. Good to have you. So it's long been the case that Madison doesn't have enough housing options for its homeless and low-income residents. Big picture, why has it been so hard for Madison to address these shortages? Well, one issue is that Madison has an anticipated growth of, you know, 100,000 new residents by 2050 and is expecting to add, you know, to need to add 50,000 new households by that time. So the city's growing at a really vast rate. And there hasn't been enough housing to to keep up with that growth. So there's just not a lot available. And then when you get into, you know, building low income housing, building affordable housing projects, sometimes those things don't actually end up addressing the needs of the people who need them the most. And so sometimes we push uh, people who need the affordable housing the most further out to the margins. In this story, you refer to a cycle that plagues those who are trying to pay rents that they just can't afford. Can you tell me about Eula Newcomb-Devasia and what her experience tells us about housing insecurity in Madison? Well, it tells us that there are people who are facing just horrific issues. You know, Eula is somebody who has terminal cancer diagnosis. She's already you know, by the grace of God, outlived her life expectancy that the doctors have given her. But she's struggled with housing insecurity at the same time that she's battling this, you know, awful cancer disease. And it just shows us how thin the margins are. You know, she's somebody who's gone to family shelters, been at the Beacon Day shelter. She's been homeless. She's had you know, eviction notices, all those things, and just struggled to find a really solid place for her and her family to live. And I think that her story really exemplifies what a lot of people go through, where it's just this cascade of one thing after another after another. And I think that a lot of us who are not facing that kind of wave it off, even if we're well-meaning, and say, well, they just need a better job get better income, and then, you know, everything will be better if they just, you know, sort of economically get ahead of everything. And it's just so hard. Once you're in this rut, it just snowballs. And it's one thing after another. You know, it's groceries, bills, utilities, childcare, you know, car trouble, if you get hurt, you know, stuff like that. These unexpected bills or just bills you can't pay while you're throwing so much of your income at paying rent or paying, you know, for your housing. 
You mentioned that affordable housing sometimes doesn't serve those who most need it. What did you mean by that? So most affordable housing projects, you know, especially ones that take what are called WIDA tax credits, um, where, you know, they go through this process that's highly competitive. Those projects are primarily, you know, your typical five to eight story, 70 unit, you know, 90 unit huge um, developments. And what they do is, you know, they'll designate a bunch of, you know, units there to be, you know, affordable, quote unquote. And affordable is usually about 30% of, you know, the area's median income. In Dane County, that median income is, you know, 71000 a year. So basically, if we have um, an apartment building that has units designated for people who make 30% of that, so people who are making $21,000 a year, they can go into that. And, you know, usually the range is like 30% to 80% of that. So it goes all the way up to, you know, you making $65,000 a year. Well, if you're just, um, you know, I don't mean to pick on anybody, but if you're just a counter worker at Quick Trip who's making $17,000 a year, you don't even qualify for that. 30% because you're making less than that. So what you need is low income housing where they say, yeah, you know, people who are making 15 to $25,000 a year, these are housing units that you can have that you can afford that aren't, you know, some of these other designations like section eight and things like that, that kind of carry with them weird stigmas. So, the through line is that not all affordable housing, quote unquote, is affordable. And sort of the end of the sentence is, you know, when we're, we're talking about affordable housing, we're saying, who is it affordable for? So a person making $65,000 a year is doing pretty well, to be honest. And that's the person who fills up these units. So what we need are sort of bridge developments that are the bridge between, you know, Section 8 housing and sort of the higher end, you know, places like the Galaxy that are like, you know, you can make 60% of median income and be, that's what we're calling affordable. We need those middle ground units, and that's what the city's committing to doing. Got it. And you explained that the city is starting to see more small developments for affordable housing. You mentioned, for example, a four-unit building on Jennifer Street on the east side. What advantages are housing advocates seeing in these smaller developments? Well, the smaller developments are the ones that the city is going after doing. So in order to qualify for, you know, like WIDA funding, Usually those are like the 70 unit ones, like I was talking about. What the city wants to do is empower and fund smaller things, you know, eight to 10 units or, you know, even things smaller than that or co-op housing, things, you know, that are just sort of renovating an old, you know, duplex or something that, you know, then is affordable for people. And what, what enables them to do that is the city is adding $2 million to this fund. 
that they'll use to send out sort of requests for proposals from developers who can then use that money to build the building. Because one of the reasons why we don't have enough low income or middle ground housing is it costs a lot of money to literally build the building and developers, you know, there's no profit in building low income and affordable housing structures. So the city wants to incentivize developers to do that. And those are, you know, the eight to 10 unit things, the stuff like Commonwealth Development did on Jennifer Street. Um, they're doing the same thing over on Raymond Road. They've got a bunch of units that are all, you know, low income. That's sort of what they do. And so the city is anticipating for sure that places like Commonwealth Development will jump on the opportunity to use those funds. And Justice Castaneda from Commonwealth also told you that his organization is rethinking how it screens potential tenants and that he thinks more organizations need to do the same. Can you tell me about the usual screening process and what they're trying instead? Well, usually, you know, you screen for things you look for, you know, how you and I might apply for something like your new phone or something. You go through this big credit check, all this background stuff. At least I do. And, you know, usually it's it's not the most fun experience. The same type of concept is true for people applying to get into some of these units. You know, whenever you're applying to rent someplace, they do a background check. They look at your financial history and they look at all of these actuary measures to determine whether or not you'll be a good tenant who's well behaved and pays on time and and things like that. And what Justice Castaneda was talking about is that the the measures that we use for that don't really predict bad behavior. They just actually prevent people who need housing from getting in to places that they need to get into. And he actually at first wasn't completely on board with changing the screening process, but his staff at Commonwealth worked really hard on changing how they look at tenants and they let, you know, they allow a lot of people in that other places won't let in just by eliminating some of the looking at somebody's past finances or incomes, all these different types of things um, that he says aren't really predictive of how they're going to behave as a tenant. And he's, interestingly, you know, the people who are doing all these screening processes already have tenants that aren't paying and they're leaving out people who, who really would. A lot of companies, you know, Development companies don't want to take Section 8, you know, people who receive vouchers for for Section 8. And one of the things that Castaneda was talking about is that Section 8 tenants are your best tenants. They don't want to lose that voucher. So they're definitely going to pay on time. They're definitely going to be well-behaved tenants because they're really solid. Um, because they need that voucher. And there's a lot of stigma that goes along with just saying, oh, this floor will be for people with Section 8, or you have a ritzy unit up at the Galaxy, 
that you're like, yeah, a Section 8 tenant's going to have this right next door to our very wealthy other tenants. And those things sort of sort of clash with one another. But I think that the basic through line is that in order to let people in to these places where they need to go, you got to loosen up the screening requirements and go for what's real, which is, is this person paying on time actually? And are they actually well behaved right now, regardless of what is in their file? This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. So we've been talking about renting, but you note in the story that buying a home is one of the most important ways that families build generational wealth. Why is it so hard for low-income families to buy homes in the Madison area? And what's being done to make buying a home a more affordable option? So just like we talked about earlier with people who are facing housing insecurity, it's those things, you know, your groceries, your bills, your insurances, all of the monthly things that we pay for in every in everyday life that go on top of paying for our housing. And for a lot of people who are, you know, just getting by, who have good income, who are you know, stable and ready to own a home, you know, making things like the down payment, getting a mortgage, those are the challenges. So what the city of Madison's done is Matt Walker, who's led their team for a long time uh, when it comes to affordable housing and um, housing issues in general, they've created places like Mosaic Ridge, which is over by Ally Drive, where the city of Madison pays your down payment and helps with some of those, you know, initial costs that when you're buying a home you face so that a lower percentage of your income goes to getting in the door of that home that you're right is, is key to, you know, passing down, you know, sort of generational wealth, you know, owning a home, selling it later, all of those kinds of things. But, you know, it's all of these monthly, you know, sort of ticky tack things we have to pay for that just pile on to things like a down payment. And alleviating that enables people to um, have a greater chance of, of buying a home and living out that dream. And, and one of the things that, um, that Jim O'Keefe, who's the director of Madison's Community Development Division, told me is that wealthy people get to choose where they live and choose their neighborhood and pick their home. And he wants to have people who are low to middle income be able to live out that same dream. And of course, I mean, it sounds sort of corny, but it's really true that like expanding that dream for all people who are where, you know, the full range on the spectrum of income is really key to to housing security in the city. And does the pandemic seem to be changing anything about the way the city thinks about these long-term housing challenges? Does this seem like it's going to speed up solutions in any respect? Well, it's unclear if it's speeding up solutions, but it is definitely raising the 
bar, I guess, or putting more pressure on trying to address these issues because now you have to do everything safely and now you have to do everything in terms of thinking about not just housing somebody. You know, just last week they announced that the Carmenta Nursing Home on Milwaukee Street that's been abandoned is going to be a temporary men's shelter or temporary family shelter, rather, um, that it looks like the Salvation Army will use. And, you know, during the pandemic, you have all those people kind of going into one building. You know, you're going to have to have sanitation and all of these different things piled on top of taking care of an already super vulnerable population. And the other part is that at the end of the year, the moratorium on evictions lifts and we aren't sure what's going to happen then if landlords are going to get really gung ho about kicking people out, needing to recoup money they've lost during the pandemic and whether or not that's going to spike the homelessness population even more that that remains to be seen. Yeah. You cover development all the time. So you're always talking with developers or sitting in on community meetings. As you reported this story, what did you learn about affordable housing that you weren't expecting? The thing I learned was that it's not that affordable. You know, I'm looking at the incomes that people are able to make and still get into these affordable housing designations and realizing they're making more money than me. You know, and I've got a pretty steady job. And if I didn't, I have no idea where I would go to to even get into someplace. And the other thing that I learned was there's so many people fighting really hard every day to make this a reality. The city of Madison has a really strong team of people like Jim O'Keefe and Matt Wachter who spend all day, every day, trying to think of ways to expand the number of units, to raise the level of density, to make sure that people have a place to go. And it's really incredible the dedication that, you know, those two individuals in particular have um, have shown. And then you have people like Justice who are innovators, who are doing what they can to to make things equitable for people who who need the help and making sure that the help they receive is actually real and even covering the development beat you know going to committee meetings or plan commission or whatever you know you you see all the people who are trying to build buildings and and make money to be honest but you don't necessarily see the people who are fighting tooth and nail to make sure that people like Eula have some place to live that's her own. Absolutely. Nick, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate you having me. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Cap Times Metro reporter Nicholas Garten, who keeps readers in the know about the most important changes in our neighborhoods. Tune in next week for a conversation about our next cover story. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to the Madsplainers on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you do your listening, and leave us a review while you're there. Also, be sure to check out our other podcasts, including The Corner Table, all about food and drink in Madison, 
and wedge issues all about state politics. Until next time, thanks for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.